Hello. Um, <clears throat> to quote the renowned psychiatrist and author M. Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Travelled, some of you may have read it. To quote M. Scott Peck, life is difficult. Life is hard. Life is full of hardships and suffering and trials and challenges and issues. And I don't need to give you examples, but I could give you many examples of all the ways in which life is difficult. Many of us have faced uh, disappointment, disease, debt. Many of us have struggled in one way or another with a circumstance or a situation. Many of us have faced challenges where we've not known the way forward, the way out. Life is difficult. Maybe it's been with, with relationships, family politics, a, a, a broken friendship, a broken relationship that's left you heartbroken, a separation, a divorce. Maybe it's a struggle or, or a challenge at work or with your finances. Life is, is difficult. It's a cheery start to the day, isn't it? <laughs> but what I want to ask you this morning is I want to ask you how you faced life's inevitable difficulties. What have you thought? What's been your inner monologue? What have you, what have you role-played in your mind? What have you done? How have you acted in those moments where life is hard? Maybe some of you, like me, in those difficult moments or difficult seasons in life, you've thought, not again. Maybe you've thought, why, why me? Maybe you've really struggled with anger. You've been angry at God or angry at a particular person. Maybe if you're in a moment of of danger or a particular instance where you're, you're suddenly faced with a, tr a trial or a challenge, you, you, you panic. I remember when I was fishtailing a jeep on an island in, off the coast of Auckland um, and rolled it into a ditch. I have to confess that I used a, a few coarse Anglo-Saxon expletives in that moment. Like, maybe there are times where you are shocked and surprised and fear rises up. What's the inner monologue when you face life's difficulties? Or, or, or what do you find yourself maybe role-playing role playing out? Maybe you role-play out the conversation you need to have with your boss, with your spouse, with your friend. And what do you do in those moments when life is hard, when you're facing an issue or a struggle? What's your posture? I've, as I've reflected on this, I've found that what I tend to do is I tend to work really hard. Often I'll, I'll think, okay, I'm a smart guy, I can figure this out. How do I get myself out of this pickle? And often I'll just work, I'll graft, I'll, I'll, I'll labor until I've seen that season through. Maybe, maybe some of you can, can relate to that. Well, today we're going to see a brilliant example of what to do when life is hard. It comes from the next chapter in our series in Acts chapter 23, but we, before we turn here, let me catch you up if you've not been with us for the series, uh, or if you've not been with us these last couple of Sundays. Um, Acts is a well-known book. Uh, many of you may have read it or read it 
in the not-too-distant future, but, but let me bring you all up to speed. So essentially, Acts, or Acts of the Holy Spirit, as it's sometimes called, Acts of the Apostles, is split into three chunks. And in 2019, if you were with us, you'll remember Acts Part 1 and Acts Part 2. Acts Part 1, from chapters 1 to 8 or 9, is essentially the Holy Spirit empowering the church to, uh, to, 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 to witness. And so the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, empowers and fills the, the disciples, and essentially they get increasingly persecuted. Life is harder and harder for them in Jerusalem. They're scattered. And that diaspora sees them basically spread the gospel throughout the kind of that, that, that region around Jerusalem. Acts part two, chapters kind of nine through to 20, sees a significant shift in the narrative and the storyline. And that's essentially following Paul, who was Saul, and he has a dramatic conversion experience, meets Jesus, is radically saved on the road to Damascus, and then spends the rest of the next few chapters of the story, many years, on three missionary journeys around modern-day Turkey and Greece. That's Acts part two. Still with me? Still tracking? And then Acts part three, which we started a fortnight ago in chapter 21, and then last week, chapter 22, is essentially, again, a change in the narrative where we see Paul deliberately and willingly return to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to face opposition from the Orthodox religious Jews who hate the fact that he's been preaching to the Gentiles who they despise and because they want to exclusively remain the chosen people of God, they don't want the Gentile riffraff to be included in hearing the great good news of the risen Lord Jesus. And he goes back to Jerusalem and he faces, he goes to the temple and he tries to argue his defense and the mob turn on him and they riot and the Roman uh, garrison, who the fortress is right next to the temple. They hear this all kick off and they go to the temple and they essentially haul Paul out of the temple for his own safety. They bring him back to the fortress. He's walking up the steps of the fortress. Um, Antonia, he speaks to the Roman commander and says, let me have a word with the baying mob. I know they want to kill me, but I think I've got a few choice words. And he turns and faces them and essentially tries to give his, his defense, but he doesn't give them theology or beliefs. As Sarah reminded us last week, he tells this story he tells his testimony, and they listen pretty well until we get to chapter 22, verse 21, where he says, and at that point, Jesus met me and told me to preach to the Gentiles, which incites the mob again, and they're like, kill him, kill him. So the Romans drag him all the way into the fort and put him in a jail cell for his own protection. This is where we pick up the story today. So if you've got a Bible, if you can open chapter 22, the end of Acts chapter 22, uh, so it's uh, a, few a few books into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. If you haven't got a Bible, there should be Bibles maybe around you in the chairs or the pews in front of you, or at least get out on a piece of technology so you can follow with me, because I'm going to go on a whistle-stop tour of chapter 22 and 23 pretty fast, and I want you to keep with me and follow with me. Some verses will appear on screen, but it's going to be way better if you track with me in your Bibles. So, Chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. So the mob turn on him again. There I say, they drag him into the barracks, and essentially what happens is the Roman commander doesn't know who Paul is, doesn't know why he's incited such a crowd, and so he strips him, and, and, and uh, ba ba they bound him, bind him, past tense of being bound. Anyway, tie him up, and then uh, they're about to flog him and torture him to interrogate him so that he will confess and tell them what he's doing. They think maybe he's an Egyptian terrorist or just a, a Jewish nobody. And at this point, if you're following in the story, um, in verses 24, 25, 26, Paul plays his ace, his trump card, which has nothing to do with American presidents, his trump card. And he says, he says, Roman, I'm a Roman citizen. At which point, all the soldiers shrink back and the commander has a mild freak out because he knows he's not allowed 
to bind or flog or interrogate a Roman citizen. You following with me? The commander, verse 29, was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So then he tries a different tack to find out what Paul has done and why he's guilty, why the mob wanted to kill him. So look at verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin, that's all the religious leaders, all of the the, the leaders of the Jewish temple, uh, to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before him. So he's putting Paul on trial before a Jewish court. The next few verses are a bit strange. Essentially, Paul gives one line of defense. He's punched in the face. He trades verbal insults with the high priests. And then we reach verse 6, and Paul says, Knowing that some were Sadducees in the Sanhedrin and others Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. So he's giving his, his kind of religious credentials. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He's obviously referring to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he, the message he's been preaching. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly were divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, and the Pharisees believe in all these things. There was a great uproar. Essentially what happens is he, he throws them a curveball. He lobs a grenade into the middle of this this court setting, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees basically have this infighting ensues, and Paul's like, ha, 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 my cunning plan worked. And essentially what happens is that they're they're, they're whipped up into a frenzy. They want to kill him again, and so the commander hauls him again and brings him back into the barracks. It says at the end of verse 10, uh, they take him away by force and bring him back into the barracks. Then in verse 11, are you tracking with me? Then in verse 11, this beautiful moment which we'll return to, it says that Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him in his cell and offered him words of comfort. Then in verses 12 to 22, we essentially get another part of the story where there is a plot to kill and assassinate Paul. There's uh, basically a group of 40 uh, uh, Orthodox Jews who organize an ambush, and they say They assume the commander will bring Paul before the Sanhedrin on the next day, and so in the narrow streets of Jerusalem, they're going to gang up, they're going to ambush Paul, they're going to kill him, and they swear an oath not to eat or drink until they do so. But, verse 16, Paul's nephew, who knew Paul had relatives, he has a sister who had a son, who somehow gets wind of this plot to Paul's life, and he goes to tell Paul, your life is in danger. Paul says, please tell the Roman commander that my life is in danger, which he does, I've got all sorts of questions about Paul's nephew and how he knew and how he got access to that intel. I I don't know. And then the commander, who has now discovered that Paul is a Roman citizen and wants, he's moved from, if anything, wanting to just get rid of him to now wanting to protect him and defend him at all costs. He then comes up with a scheme and a plot not to put Paul in front of the Sanhedrin again, but but instead, under cover of darkness, to secret him to Caesarea, the regional capital of Judea, um, so that the governor um, can try him um, and put him um, in, an, in another, this time a, a Roman court. Um, so you see in verse 21, it says, he, he, here's the, the nephew saying to the commander, 40 of them are going to wait in ambush. They've taken this oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. Then in verse 23, the commander says to uh, some of his centurions, he says, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine, cover of darkness, tonight. That's more than half of his garrison. Like, he, he wants to keep Paul safe. This is a lot of armed men. I mean, 
one man does not need that big an armed escort. It's remarkable. Then he writes a letter, if you're in verse 26 now, uh, he, he uh, introduces himself, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, and he writes this weaselly letter to the governor saying, oh, I hope you never find out that I bound and nearly flogged a Roman citizen, but here he is, I've protected him, and he's now under your jurisdiction, and we see in verse 33 that the cavalry arrive in Caesarea, they deliver the letter to the governor and hand Paul over. And there begins two years of imprisonment in Caesarea for Paul when he has to uh, explain himself before Governor Felix and later his successor, Governor Festus. <sighs> Whistle stop tour of where we are in, in, in the passage. And there was too much of the text for me to read, so I, I, went, I went for the, 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 the edited highlights. Okay, let me find where we are. Loads of drama, loads of action, loads of activity. But to any outside observer, and maybe you've read this or you've listened to me recount it, and it seems maybe that, seems like the devil's more kind of, uh, has got the upper hand here. It seems like the gospel is facing another major blow. Opposition is, is fierce. The crowds are baying for blood. Paul is being kept imprisoned for his own safety. What on earth is going on here? Now, look, we might never experience the intensity or the frequency of Paul's sufferings and trials. We might never have our life threatened for the sake of our faith, like Paul did so many times. But we have all faced, and we will all face, persecution and suffering. Life will be hard for all of us because life is difficult. And I believe that chapter 23 shows us what to do when life is hard and when we're facing any kind of challenge or, or, or trial. I want to highlight three key points of application, three ways in which this story isn't just interesting or true, but actually real and relevant for us to today, so that when, not if, but when we face hardships in life, we can take incredible encouragement from the example of Paul, because he showed tremendous courage and incredible composure because he knew three key things. He knew his identity, he knew Jesus' presence was with him, and he knew that God's plans always prevail. Firstly then, he knew his identity. Paul knew who he was, and he knew whose he was. I think there's a really interesting parallel at play here with Paul leveraging his rights as a Roman citizen. Remember how the Roman commander had had him bound and stripped, ready to flog and torture him to get a confession out of him. Well, Paul knew that his Roman citizenship played the card Roman. He knew that that Roman citizenship afforded him special rights and privileges, like being given a fair trial, for example. And he used them here to ensure not only his protection, but hopefully, if he survived, for, uh, so that he, can, he could continue to preach the gospel. Now we know from several accounts of ancient history, examples of how various Roman emperors punished entire towns and even entire islands whenever there were reports of Roman citizens being mistreated or imprisoned. Non-Romans, they didn't care much about. Barbarians, flog them, beat them, kill them, imprison them. We don't care that much. But Roman citizens were covered by the power and protection of Rome. 
And Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander here, he knew that to abuse a Roman citizen was effectively to abuse the Roman emperor himself. And he was rightly very, very scared. Now think back for a moment to Acts 9 and Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. If you remember the story, Paul is on the way to persecute Christians. Uh, He's part of the religious Jewish uh, 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 crowd, and he meets the risen Lord Jesus in person, visibly on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says to him, he asks him a question which echoes the same terror that Claudius Lysias would have felt. Jesus asked him, do you remember, Saul, Saul, as he was called then, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not, why do you persecute my church? Or why do you persecute followers of the way? But why do you persecute me? Do you see that? Luke wants the church to be in absolutely no doubt that when they suffer trials or persecution on behalf of God's kingdom, Jesus considers it attack on himself personally. And he will not be outstripped by Caesar in his commitment to protect his people. Amen? But more than being a Roman citizen, with all of its associated rights and privileges, here's the parallel. Paul was a citizen of a different kingdom, wasn't he? The kingdom of God. Remember Paul's words to the Ephesians, because with this revelation of that identity, he wants to remind all Christians everywhere for all time that they too are citizens of the kingdom of God. Ephesians, where he says, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. And remember, we weren't born citizens, like Paul was born a Roman citizen. We didn't buy our citizenship, like you could do in, uh, in Roman times, like Claudius Lysias did. We, we learn about that in chapter 22, 28. On the contrary, our citizenship into the kingdom of God was bought, but someone else paid the price. Someone else bought us. We are those that Jesus bought with his own blood. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if that's your identity, you are a child of Almighty God. You are chosen. You are beloved. You are redeemed. And that means you can claim the rights of belonging to God, that God will never leave you or forsake you, just like he was always with Paul. We're not mere subjects who appeal to our Savior as Paul appealed to Caesar here, hoping that some far-off emperor will answer our cry of distress. No, our ruler has purchased our citizenship by the shedding of his blood on the cross. So what can we learn from Paul here? Know your identity. Know who you are and whose you are. Know your rights and your privileges as a kingdom citizen. You are a new creation. You are a conqueror. You are a co-heir with the creator of the universe. Aren't you? I mean, you can get excited about that, because I am. Jesus will never abandon us in our troubles. He affords us far greater protection than any Roman emperor ever could. When you're threatened, he will be with you. He'll deliver you. He offers you heavenly protection as a kingdom, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Know your identity and appeal 
to the king in whose kingdom you are, you are a member. Secondly, Paul knew Jesus' presence was with him. For, for sure, Paul found courage and confidence and comfort in his identity and in knowing his rights and privilege, privileges as a kingdom citizen. But what's even more brilliant about this passage, in the midst of all the chaos and the commotion and the confusion, is this. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in the middle of his cell. And I know I whizzed past verse 11 deliberately to return to it now. So look at that verse right now. He shows up and he shows us what's really happening and who's really in charge. He gives us a different perspective from the command room of heaven. Things are going, apparently, exactly to plan and the sovereign Lord is about to display his death-defying wisdom. Look at verse 11. Let's read it again. It says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul. That intrigues me, that phraseology. He stood near Paul. Wonder how close he, he got. I don't know. And he said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord Jesus himself comes and visits Paul in his cell and tells him that his witness will spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And Jesus exhorts him. He says, take courage. But I don't think Jesus even needed to say that because I think if you saw Jesus in person in your prison cell or in your home, you wouldn't need to be told to take courage. You would literally be like, I'm feeling pretty courageous because Jesus is right here with me. Paul would have stood up if he could. If he was bound, he would have puffed out his chest and he probably would have roared and bellowed because he would have felt courageous in that moment because Jesus was with him. It made all the difference for Paul knowing that Jesus was there in person by his side, his ever-constant companion, and it makes all the difference for us too. Does it not? I wonder if you've ever seen Jesus standing near you. Maybe not. This is a very special set of circumstances. But I tell you what, I am absolutely certain that every single one of us here who know and love Jesus have felt his presence with us. Have you not? And I know you recognize that feeling. And I'm absolutely certain too that when, not if, when we face trials and sufferings and struggles in some way or another, we have reminded ourselves of this truth, that Jesus is with us. The spirit of the risen Lord Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, our counselor, our comforter, is with us. Jesus promised he would never leave us or forsake us. The scriptures promise that when we become a Christian, we are sealed with the mark of the Spirit, filled with his presence and power. And because Jesus is with us, we can face the storms of life. We know the Holy Spirit is in us, coursing through our veins, and we 
absolutely can face adversity. We can speak boldly. We can have the courage of our convictions. We can stand up to adversity or, or to abuse when we're faced with it without backing down. And maybe, for a few of us, maybe even to face the threat of death with lion heart courage because Jesus is with us. So Paul knew his identity. He knew Jesus' presence was with him. And thirdly, lastly, he knew that God's plans always prevail. Stay in verse 11. Jesus says to him, take courage. Ah, take courage. And then he says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Imagine how Paul felt in this moment. There's no doubt that Paul, seeing Jesus standing there right next to him, telling him that he would make it to Rome, that he must go to Rome, would have filled Paul with a renewed sense of peace and courage. Paul trusted in that moment that somehow, by hook or by crook, he would survive the mob. He would survive the ambush plan. He would somehow get out of Jerusalem one way or another. He would get to Rome. Jesus had a plan. And this plan would prevail. He had rock-solid conviction that God was sovereign, that he was large and in charge, that he was orchestrating all things, and that no matter what he could trust, that God's plan would come to pass. Now, what he didn't know, of course, was the detail on that plan, or quite how that plan would be worked out. But it didn't stop him having absolute confidence in God's sovereign will and power. And I wonder too, I think it's worth noting that Paul probably had a very different idea about what giving testimony in Rome would have meant, would have looked like. It's so true for us, isn't it, that maybe we get a sense of God's revealed plan for us. We have a sense of calling or conviction of something we need to do or somewhere we need to go. And we think, it'll probably play out something like this, but we hope that it won't involve any hardships or sufferings at all and be really quite easy and nice along the way. Don't you do that? Paul probably figured he'd head off on another missionary journey, preaching and teaching all the way to Rome, meeting friends and making new ones. And then maybe when he got to Rome, he would preach in the city streets and in the squares and in the mighty amphitheaters of that great city. But that's not the way it played out at all, as we'll find out in the next few weeks. Many of us have had the experience of having a sense of God's calling, of God revealing his will for our lives and maybe a glimpse of our future, but it always plays out slightly differently and often much harder than we hoped or imagined it might. Ever since this story, church history and Christian experience, your lived experience. We've faced knockbacks and disappointments and hardships, and without a really big view of a really big God, followers of Jesus would never hold their nerve. Often it looks like Satan is winning, but God's plan always prevails. Of course, it looked most stark at Jesus' death on the cross, for sure in that moment Satan was rubbing his hands it looked like he had won and as Jesus took his final breath it looked like death had won 
But then, of course, comes the resurrection and Jesus' incredible triumphant victory. And ever since that day, the day of the resurrection until this day, and every day forward from here, however bad things look, whatever trials you face, however difficult life is, whatever suffering or persecution or challenge or disease, let me remind you that God is absolutely in charge. Whether we're hit with an 18-month pandemic, I hate COVID. Anyone else? Yeah. So robbed us of so much. But God is still in charge. He's sovereign. He never breaks his promises. And his plans always prevail. Paul knew that Jesus was with him and so he trusted God and God's plans did indeed prevail. Two frustrating years in Caesarea amazingly gave Luke the opportunity to finish his gospel. It gave Paul the chance to preach to all the leading people in that city. Paul's later shipwreck, which we'll learn about, meant a chance to preach to a boatload of pagans and to the otherwise forgotten island of Malta. Two years in prison in Rome gave him unprecedented access to soldiers and judges and even the household of Emperor Nero himself. Open house arrest meant he reached all of Italy without leaving his front door. God's plans always prevail. So to close, what can we learn from how Paul deals with adversity here? What do we do when life gets tough? Because life is difficult. Three things. We remember our identity. We remember who we are and whose we are. We remember that Jesus' presence is always with us. And we remember that God's plans always prevail no matter what. None of us have ever or will ever face what Paul did. None of us have faced a mob baying for our blood. None of us have had to be rescued by the local police for our own safety and protection. None of us have had to face trial for our faith. But all of us will face hardships and suffering and challenges in life. And it is in these moments that we need to trust God and to trust in his protection, and to trust in his presence, and to trust in his plans, no matter what the circumstances. He is sovereign, he knows what he's doing, and we can trust him.